This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking riding in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, I've been thinking about the possibility of a format change to our show. Yeah? So, you know, we're, we're very consistent. We have chit-chat at the beginning, and then we kick riding in the butt most, most weeks uh, for the majority of the show. I was thinking we could eliminate the chit-chat and just go right to a farm report. <laughs> I hear you have a I hear you have a chicken story for us today. <laughs> I promised to force my garden stories on you and instead I switched over to chicken stories. <laughs> yeah, I know I had something really funny happen this last week and I was like, "Aha, I have to tell people about this." So I had been telling you about how I hatched out that last batch or whatever. And um, the the chickens have been hatching uh, their chicks. And I, I take a lot of them from them because it's the only way that they're going to live. They don't last. They don't survive long on their own. And every once in a while, a chick will hatch that has some kind of um, hip problem. And it has to do with whether they get out of the sh- how they get out of the shell or whatever. So one of the things that's a problem is called splay leg, and it's like they do the splits. So their legs, their feet are pointing out to the side, and if normally like that's gonna that chicken's not gonna make it. It's gonna die because can't walk, right? And there's another thing that sometimes happens where the um, the, the legs will be like stiff, like if you imagined um, a a skier, an Olympic skier going down with those slopes and then they take that leap, right? And then their skis are kind of out in front of them like that. And that's kind of what the chick's legs look like. And again, they can't walk. And it's all fixable. Like just with the human baby, sometimes babies are born with hip problems. You, When their bodies are so um, young and malleable, you can fix it just by putting things back into position and, and holding them in place. So splay legs... The way that you fix them is, you well, I mean, everybody's got their own technique. But I have a technique where I'll, I'll cut like a little tiny piece of straw off of, a, off of a drinking straw and put a rubber band, thread a rubber band through that, and then attach one end of that rubber band to the chip, one leg and one rubber band to the other leg, and it pulls the legs in, right? But I had the I had a chick I, I, that it had both of those problems. So not only was it splay leg but his feet were straight out. And there's just no way a chick like that can survive. And I thought, okay, well, I know how to fix both of these things, so I'm gonna see if this works. And it was like midnight and I couldn't nurse this thing along. So I was like, this either has to work or it's gonna be dead in the morning. But either way, maybe I'll have given it a chance. And it was really cute and I didn't want it to just die. So the way that you fix that skier's leg thing is, is my technique you stuff the chick into a shot glass. And the, the reason for that is what it does is it forces the, the joints back into position, like as if it was still inside the egg, and it gives it time. 
So I, I attached the rubber bands to the feet, did all that, and stuffed it in the shot glass. It was very unhappy and protested very loudly. And I stuck it under, like, where it looked to me like the rest of the chicks were under the light. And the thing is, is you, when you can get yourself out of that glass, then you're good to go. <laughs> like, get yourself out of the glass the same way you would get yourself out of the egg. So... I just let him go, you know. I, he was a really cute chicken. I really wanted it to live, but, you know, I did the best I could, and I went to bed. And I came back the next morning, and there's no chick in the glass. And I was like, okay, so I'm expecting to see a dead chick somewhere, and I can't find one. So I'm like, okay, well, who is it? <laughs> Which one of you guys? I'm looking for somebody that can't walk, that's hobbling around. And I had to I finally found it by picking up every single one and looking underneath to see who still had rubber bands on his legs. He's completely fine. He's walking around just like everybody else. I saved him. Yay. That's my chick story. Oh, my gosh. That is, thankfully, I was muted through most of that because I was laughing so hard. I mean, you're stuffing <laughs> a little chick into a shot to glass. A shot glass. Oh, yes. You have to do a video of this because this is, this is something that people need to know. This is amazing. Well, I mean, the information's out there. I didn't come up with it on my own. Like, I've seen other people do different variations of it. I just use a shot glass because that's what's available, and they can't get out of them easily. So they really have to work to to stretch their muscles, and, and you know, it puts everything where it needs to go. But, yes, maybe, maybe I'll get around to taking a video or pictures or something. And the rubber band thing, that just sounds like fitness bands for chickens. Uh, yeah, it, it's taking me a, a trial, a lot of trial and error. Um, People, other people will use um, like a, it's a tape, but it's like a, an athletic tape or something they use for binding wounds or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I don't always have that on hand, but I can always find a drinking straw and some rubber bands or whatever. And it's taken me a while to figure out the right ratio between straw and rubber band and like so that it's not pushing their feet up tight against it and hurting them and just different things. And, you know, trial and error, but I finally... I have my techniques down. I'm <laughs> a farm girl now, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. All right, so now it's we shift ever so subtly into kicking writing in the butt time for, for this week. So what do we have this week? So um, I don't know. Can I say that I've been working on the Reggie project? Is that, like, okay? Yeah. Okay, so I've been working on Steve's... <laughs> Steve's book. Like people, people and, don't know that you've seen this. Okay, and so Steve finished his book. Woo! Yay, Steve! And so he's asked me to look over it, um, sort of as a writing partner. And you know, I love doing this for two reasons. One, because I really do enjoy the story, and and I like that Steve writes so light, like half, like funny, like lighthearted, compared to what I write, which is so dark and graphic. So I'm having fun with it, but it always provides really good material because when I'm working on my own stuff, there are sometimes ideas of things of what we can talk about, but it's much easier when I'm working on somebody else's because I don't know, it's just the way it is. So, um, <laughs> and let's not go any further with that. So, um, this started out as I have just a couple paragraphs. I wanted to to highlight, and it started out as just an example of how sometimes perfunctory dialogue, like the things we say in real life when we're saying hello or goodbye or whatever, how on the page it could come across as filler. And I wanted to use it as an example of how the best way to avoid that and fix it so that it doesn't feel like just, you know, wasted words. 
But then while I was breaking this down into notes and stuff, I realized that these paragraphs also, they provided this like a really good example. Well, I don't know. It's a lot of a lot of explanation for very few words. So how good in air quotes this is of an example is entirely subjective. <laughs> but I thought it provided a, a good like platform or walking the plank <laughs> to to go into more depth about how you can strengthen a scene's ending, how small um, word tweaks just small things can completely alter character dynamics or change how a character comes across. And those are things that can have bearings on like how likable or unlikable a character is. So it's really small material, but it's kind of like a launch point for multiple discussions. So that's kind of where I wanted to go with this. Okay, let's do it. All right. So before we read this tiny, tiny little excerpt, here's what we need to know. So this is coming at the end of a rather short and very light conversation. And by light, I mean in its tone, because the whole book has a light tone, but also in the sense that it's an interview, like the main character is trying to get information but there's not really any game-changing or plot-changing insider information being handed over. So it's light on substance, I guess you would say, as well. So in terms of moving the story forward, you could almost say that the scene itself doesn't have a real purpose, other than that this is just one of many or several people that the character's interviewing, while trying to hunt down the culprit. But the character at this point in the story doesn't even really truly know which direction he's going. He's just interviewing people. So that forgives the lack of substance, but also um, we gain character history in insight into character history during this interview. So the last time that the characters met, the main character, Reggie, he was a teen and he was sneaking into the house to visit with the family's youngest daughter. And I put visit in quotes. You guys can deduce what that means. And um, so this character he's speaking with, Mrs. Suarez, she had been that daughter's caretaker. She kind of runs the household and she's the one who caught him. So she's never really been friendly with him. Quite the opposite, actually. And from the very beginning of this conversation, Reggie is expecting it to be awkward, which it is. But the conversation itself surrounding all that detail is pretty thin. And the, the biggest chunk really is recounting their shared history. And so when we reach the end of that chunk, that segment, that interview, we get these two small paragraphs that basically close it out and move us on to what's next. And I ran up against an issue that was twofold. The first is that, as a general rule, perfunctory dialogue, which is the goodbyes and the formalities and blah, they all tend to feel like filler, and it's really, really, really hard to get that to read well on the page. But in this particular case, given the lightness, kind of, the sparseness of everything that led up to this ending, when we hit the perfunctory dialogue, and we combine it with everything that came before and then Reggie's inner dialogue that's happening at the same time. 
it has the unfortunate effect of making the entire scene feel like filler. And that's because the scene on its own was not a super strong scene. It was simply there. And so we don't, and we're not ending it on a strong note. So how we end the scene is going to um, affect how we feel about what we just read. If we end it strong, then even if the scene itself was not the strongest of scenes, it's going to feel like we still get that emotional satisfaction out of it. But if we end it weak with the sense of filler or whatever, it's going to leave us with that sense that why did why did we just have this? What was the purpose of it, right? So it wouldn't be enough to just sort out the dialogue issues. It, it had to have more than that. And all the changes that I've made are really incredibly small which makes it really easy for them to miss, which is why I was joking about how, you know, good is going to be relative. Like I could be making a big deal about nothing here, right? But it, it that's kind of what makes it, again, in finger quotes, good example of how small changes can have such an enormous impact, right? So I'm going to read the original now. It says, I didn't think I'd get any more from Mrs. Suarez, and quite frankly, didn't think my ego could take her disdain much longer. Thank you for your time, Mrs. Suarez. It was very nice seeing you again. Her eyes narrowed again, but she nodded. Did that mean she thought it was nice seeing me? She stood, took two steps towards the hallway, and then stopped. The missus said you'd like to speak with Mrs. Jackson as well. I'll get her for you. And that's the end of that, that segment. Now, plot-wise, writing-wise, we have to close out this conversation. You can't just, like, I mean, you can just cut it, and, and there's a certain craft involved in knowing when to cut scenes short. I've, I tend to write long, and I often have to come in and delete huge chunks of scenes at the bottom because they are essentially just filler because I didn't know when to stop. So there is a, it's an art form to that. Um, and, and possibly we could cut this scene short, but easier, I think, is just fixing these two paragraphs. So it's a natural instinct, especially when, I would say, especially when you're writing the lighter fare of things, to, to end a conversation on the page sort of similarly to the way we would do it in real life, maybe just shorter, quicker, whatever. But the, the issue, like I just mentioned, is that no matter how you do it, it's still going to come across as filler. So how do you close out a conversation without including any actual boring dialogue? And the boring dialogue meaning, thank you for your time, it was nice seeing you again, blah. Um, and so the easiest, the easiest, cleanest way to do that is by summarizing the dialogue. And by summarizing it, the actual difference in word count is really minimal. You know, it's not like you're cutting out a ton of unnecessary words. It's an example of putting style above substance. So the substance is more or less the same, but you're changing the way that substance is delivered. And, and in doing so, you provide this sense of we're moving right along, we're not lingering on the boring or the mundane, which is bam, bam, even though word count-wise is not that different. So normally... This would be where I would now read a fix and show you how to do that. And then we'd move on to the next thing. But in this case, because we're working with such a small chunk of text, it's, it's like the two things are very intrinsically intertwined. 
And it's just, I can't do it. I, I can't show you one without the other. And to solve the second, I need to find a way to strengthen the ending in a way that gives the whole scene purpose so we feel like we really got something from it, even if that something was just like a sense of emotional satisfaction or whatever. So I'm going to read it again so that it's fresh in our mind. It says, I didn't think I'd get anything more from Mrs. Suarez and, quite frankly, didn't think my ego could take her disdain much longer. Thank you for your time, Mrs. Suarez. It was very nice seeing you again. Her eyes narrowed again, but she nodded. Did that mean she thought it was nice seeing me? She stood, took two steps toward the hallway, and then stopped. The missus said you'd like to speak with Mrs. Jackson as well. I'll get her for you. So here's how I changed it. I'm going to read it in its entirety first, and then break down the changes to explain why and what each one was meant to accomplish. So here's the rewrite. I didn't think I'd get more from Mrs. Suarez and frankly, wasn't sure my ego could handle more of her disdain. So I thanked her for her time and because I couldn't help myself, told her how great it was to see her again. She stood with a knowing smirk. I'll get Mrs. Jackson for you, she said. That's it. Probably went by so fast you didn't even notice a difference. <laughs> so, <laughs> I noticed here's the, the breakdown. <laughs> here's the breakdown with what changed and why, okay? So this part stays the same. I well, with a few few word tweaks to accommodate some of the changes that were to follow. So I didn't think I'd get more from Mrs. Suarez, and frankly, wasn't sure my ego could handle more of her disdain. So I thanked her for her time. That replaces thank you for your time, Mrs. Suarez. Um, it takes us out of dialogue so that we're summarizing it, and it avoids the repeat of Mrs. Suarez. Like, that's a mouthful. When you count, the, on, the, on the page, it's not very many letters, but when you actually pronounce Mrs. Suarez, that's a lot of syllables. So it, it takes that chunk and eliminates a lot of syllables and summarizes, right? And so the next sentence says, I think of her time and because I couldn't help myself. Now that because, because I couldn't help myself is pulling really heavy double, triple duty in this, so much so that I'm going to over explain it. Right? So most critically, what that because I couldn't help myself is doing is replacing the question he asks himself, did that mean she thought it was nice seeing me? Now, why would this be critical? It's because we're looking for ways to strengthen this ending and give the scene purpose. Like what I said earlier about how the way the scene ends, like if you have a scene that's not super strong all on its own in terms of substance, how it ends is going to determine how we feel about what we just read, weak or strong, right? And we need this. We can't afford for this scene not to end the strongest way possible to give it its place in this story. Otherwise, it's, the whole thing's going to feel like filler. In general, character questions, like the unsureness they convey as the characters are questioning themselves or questioning a scenario, that's the opposite of strength. It's un being unsure. It's not knowing your place. It's not knowing what's happening, right? But that's especially, especially true in this particular scene. Because up until now, which you guys don't have the you know, I don't want to say privilege, but you haven't had the benefit of being able to read. Um, Reggie has spent a lot of this scene self-deprecating over a history in which his opponent, Mrs. Suarez, had the upper hand. But he hasn't done 
anything in this whole time to show or acknowledge that that power dynamic might have changed. In other words, he's still coming into this scene as that little kid or young teenager, older, whatever. He was he was young. She was old. Uh, and she was she she had the upper hand in the scenario. And he's he's coming into it self-deprecatingly with acknowledging the past, right? But he hasn't done anything to fix that to show that he's not that little kid anymore. So the issue with that is that self-deprecation is humor. It only works when the character is coming from a position of strength. And by strength, I mean, like, the character's clear-headed, consistent, confident in who, who they are, whoever they are. I don't mean, like, you know, I'm a macho, kick-butt type of strength. I just mean strong as a character, secure in themselves, right? When a character self-deprecates and then they follow that, self-deprecation with a position of weakness, then it's not funny anymore. It's sad. So it's kind of like when we laugh when strong people, successful people, they can poke fun of themselves and we laugh because it's safe. It's like we're punching up. But when we, we, we feel pity or like, uh, that's not quite right when weak people do it because it's uncomfortable. That's punching down. So even though the intent of this scene was humor, because we never fixed it or had Reggie take the upper hand or show confidence, when at the end of all of this, when this is all said and done and it's starting to close out, he goes, did that mean she thought it was nice seeing me? It's not funny. It feels um, like he's still that kid from the past and he's trying to get on a good side of this adult who doesn't like him. And it is literally, that question that he's asking himself is literally giving away his power. He's, he's, it's like he's claiming or cementing this lesser position. And that's weakness. And so for us to feel the humor and to be on Team Reggie, the scene has to come from a position of strength. And we do that by converting that self-doubt into confident action. And then we take... Did did that seem, you know, did that mean she missed me too or whatever? And we turn it into because I couldn't help myself. And just like that, it's like a flick of the wrist, a magic trick. Right? It goes from being needy to being cheeky. So that's the first thing that that accomplished. And the second is it's the lead in to giving us a sense of satisfaction. Because remember, I said the scene has to give us something. Right. And so since it's not really giving us information, it is giving us history, which is, is interesting and it's fun, but it doesn't feel like it has a purpose other than just to talk about stuff that's happened in the past. But this is the lead in that's going to give us a satisfactory satisfaction. So it's like it ties their shared history into a neat little bow and it shows us that the dynamics between them have changed. In other words, yes, all the things he said about, you know, that happened in the past and that this was going to be an awkward conversation. Yes, but this is an acknowledgement that, but I'm not that kid anymore, right? So it's the lead-in to, and I told her how great it was to see her again. And that replaces, it was very nice seeing you again. So we've gone from polite and perfunctory, which is boring, and it's just there and our eyes are going to gloss over it, to sort of an exaggerated sarcasm, which is fun and it shows Reggie's personality and it's entertaining, right? So the next part 
of the change goes, she stood with a knowing wink, no, a knowing smirk. And that replaces the text that says her eyes narrowed again, but she nodded. And it replaces the text, she stood, two, took two steps toward the hallway and then stopped. So basically, it's fewer words to get us to where we need to go. But it also helps nudge the power dynamics away from her having the upper hand of, over a kid to her subtly acknowledging what he just did there. A silent sort of hat tip that's like, okay, I get it. You know, you're not that little kid anymore. And then next she says, I'll get Mrs. Jackson for you. And that replaces the missus said, you'd like to speak with Mrs. Jackson as well. I'll get her for you. And the reason for that is we already know from context that Reggie needs to speak to more than one person. We know there's someone else he's still going to interview. And so we can safely assume without any explanation that Mrs. Suarez knows this too. I mean, she helps to run this household. So deleting the extra words, that keeps the narrative taut. And that tautness also helps to close the scene out with strength. So all of those little tiny microscopic changes together combine to give us two very, very strong paragraphs, which is going to completely change the tenor of the scene that came before it. So here's the original again. I didn't think I'd get anything more from Mrs. Suarez and quite frankly, didn't think my ego could take her disdain any much longer. Thank you for your time, Mrs. Suarez. It was very nice seeing you again. Her eyes narrowed again, but she nodded. Did that mean she thought it was nice seeing me? She stood, took two steps toward the hallway, and then stopped. The missus said you'd like to speak with Mrs. Jackson as well. I'll get her for you. And tweaked. I didn't think I'd get more from Mrs. Suarez, and frankly, wasn't sure my ego could handle more of her disdain. So I thanked her for her time, and because I couldn't help myself, told her how great it was to see her again. She stood with a knowing smirk. I'll get Mrs. Jackson for you, she said. And that's what we call tailorizing. It's amazing what you could do with so few words. And we've seen lots of examples of this when you've worked with material where you just change a few words or change the order of some words and it just, it, it changes so much. It's like, like you said, there, you, you had to do a lot of heavy lifting with that one change and it, it, it accomplished three or four different things by changing essentially one line. Yes. And I wish I had more examples of these that we could do it again and again, because I think that these are the types of things that it's like, it, without trying to make myself sound more than I am, and I'm afraid that's what I'm about to do, it's like a magic trick. And the first time you see it, you know it's magic. The second time, you sort of kind of get how the trick is done, but it takes a while before you can actually do the trick yourself to where other people don't know how you're doing it, right? And that's your goal as a writer is to make it invisible so the author's hand is not, um, it's not there. You know, it's just the, the words on the page. You don't see that heavy handedness. And it just takes practice and it takes seeing it again and again. This is just one scenario, right? How do you actually take this and apply this to however many dozens of similar things that might show up in your book. It's like, you can't do it, just copy over apples to apples, right? So it's understanding the thought processes that go behind it, that that's what it's going to take to be able to take that information and then turn around and be able to do it yourself. And it just means seeing it over and over and over again in multiple different ways. So I might come across more of them. Um, 
in the near future, in which case we'll come back and we'll do it again. So this is, unfortunately, it's not a, a quote unquote one time lesson where you see it once and then you know how to do it. Well, some people might, you know, that would be amazing. It's just, it's something that you, you do by practice and by figuring out how it works on your own stuff. So, yeah. All right. So that is it for this week's show. We thank you guys very much for being here and we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. See you guys next week.